0: When the heroes wander off to far flung lands. When the hat is left unattended. When the Oblex is asleep. Let me show you a hero's demise. You have
1: elected the way off. pain! I like you, Beggy.
0: Do it again.
2: I expect
1: you to buy! Hello, Expendables! In
0: case you haven't figured it out, the so-called wise adventurers are off gallivanting around the countryside. Bit of compulsion I was able to put on Ryu, and some quick work on some slime trails with a mop. Here I am with all of you. Now, I don't normally do this. Ryu and I have a good working relationship. I help her with some D inning issues, and she lets me kill the occasional player. We're all shiny. However, Recently, it's come to my attention that some of our listeners don't know who I am or why Ryu works with me, and that just won't do. Fortunately, I convinced dear Mikey to get me the best recordings from the archives. Let me educate you all. For the sake of simplicity, let's start right back at the beginning.
3: Oh, hey, Ryu, what have you got there?
0: Oh, this? It's just a magic item I found in the Gnomish workshop
3: Kind of looks like a Santa hat Um, Let me just have a look at the item card here Uh, Okay, Hat of the Killer DM Uh, When equipping this hat Make a constitution saving throw DC 15 On a failed save, the wearer becomes the killer dungeon master For the remainder of the segment You may repeat the saving throw once per round Uh, This kind of sounds cursed to me
0: I think it sounds really cool I'm going to put it on
3: that doesn't so sound- Oh okay you did it anyway. Uh alright, well make a constitution saving throw. A three? Really?
0: <laughs> Where is Alstrom? He is late.
3: Uh he said he had to see a man about a horse. Um he should be here shortly. Uh, uh, uh Alright, sorry about that, Lion Ryu. Um this isn't Ryu. That's uh, our new guest host, uh, Killer
1: DM. That's Ryu in a Santa hat that says Killer DM. Oh, really?
3: No, no, no. I, I think you'll find that's a Killer DM. Uh, please, before the rocks fall and everyone dies.
1: Ah, yes. I see now. I was mistaken. Pleased to meet you. Please don't kill me. The pleasure
0: is all mine
3: right so uh with the holiday season upon us we've decided to offer the 12 days of bonuses to help dungeon masters out there decide on what kind of bonus is best to give a player in each situation so that means that uh sorry did, did you have a question give bonuses
1: yeah two players that's the general idea
0: i understand the words but, but when, when you put, put them, them together, together that way, it, way, it makes, makes
1: no sense, sense whatsoever. Yes, well, uh, we'll cover the benefit of each bonus type, where it's used in D&D, and what it's good for, and you can point out the downsides of each type to uh, help DMs not pick a bad bonus to apply to their own damage dice, yeah?
3: Very well, then. Right, well, on that note... Uh,
1: on the first day of Christmas, no. I gave to- Oh, thank God for that. Seriously, I'm glad you stopped it. Anyway, for our first bonus, we'll look at one of the most common, the flat bonus. Simply take your roll and add a number to it, such as 1d8 plus 2. Simple and straightforward, this bonus is used throughout D&D, from attack rolls to skill checks, saving throws, damage modifiers, and so on. On the plus side, it raises the minimum, the maximum, and the average, or the mean, of your roll. Whether your d20 rolled a 1 or a 20, or somewhere in the middle, you'll have a better roll with a flat bonus than without.
2: On the The other other hand, it
0: doesn't scale very well for larger rolls. Like when shooting an arrow slaying at your players, a plus one to the the damage damage roll just doesn't seem to be terribly thrilling.
3: Well for our second bonus, we offer the related but lesser used per die flat bonus. To use it, you add a number to each die rolled rather than to the total. D&D generally only uses this to represent multiple hits on a target, such as magic missiles 1d4 plus 1 per missile. Much like the flat bonus, it raises the minimum, maximum and the mean, but it also scales with the number of dice. So the more dice you throw at it, the better this bonus gets. And
0: the fewer dice you roll, the worse it gets. I recall once giving a player a plus 1 per die bonus, He was so thrilled,
3: until he realized he only got to roll one die. I thought you said you can understand giving bonuses to players.
0: Yes, well, apparently Ryu almost succeeded in her concentration saving throw and is trying to reassert control. Move along.
1: (sighs) For our third bonus, we'll look at one which was introduced in 5th edition, rolling with advantage. When you have advantage on a roll, you roll two d20s and use whichever is higher. While d uses it only on d20 rolls, where one party has a situational advantage over the other, there's technically nothing that prevents it from being used with other dice sizes. Advantage has an interesting effect on the roll. The minimum and maximum possible rolls remain the same, but the average is skewed quite a bit higher. More interestingly, the impact of the bonus varies on the target number. On a roll of 1d20, if the target number is 10 or 11, advantage will make you 25% more likely to succeed, equivalent to a plus 5 to the roll. As the target gets closer to 1 or 20, the effectiveness of advantage diminishes. When used in a situation when there is no target number, such as rolling 1d8 damage, you still tend to see higher numbers with advantage than without.
0: But because the maximum is not affected, sometimes no amount of advantage will save a player. They will never be able to roll 21 on 1d20, advantage or no. An excellent way to crush a player's spirit in the face of imminent doom.
3: The fourth bonus type is a variant version of advantage known as the Add Bonus Dice, Drop the Lowest bonus. For example, taking a 3d6 roll, but instead rolling 4d6 and dropping the lowest dice. If this kind of sounds a little bit familiar, it's because this method has been used since first edition to roll ability scores. Unlike its cousin Advantage though, this bonus is rarely used in this form during the game, but DMs could consider using it for some variety. Like Advantage, the minimum and maximum rolls are still the same, but the rolls will tend to be higher. Unlike Advantage, it can be used with more than one die, and in situations where there are no target number.
0: I do not like this one. It lets players roll more dice. And And even when they're they're facing imminent imminent defeat, rolling large numbers of dice makes them feel
1: happy. The fifth bonus is yet another close relative to advantage, the Roll Below X bonus, as used in 5th edition by the Great Weapon Fighting Style. With this, any dice below a certain value get re-rolled. For example, roll 5d6, re-roll any ones or twos. Like the roll extra drop lowest bonus, the player rolls extra dice, but the number of dice will vary based on how abysmal the initial roll was. If you roll 5d6, re-roll the ones, you could end up with 0 to 5 extra dice depending on how many ones you rolled. Some versions of this bonus let you continue re-rolling any dice that roll below the indicated value, but 5th edition only allows a single re-roll each time. If the player is only allowed to reroll once, the effect is similar to advantage and bonus dice drop lowest. Same minimum, same maximum, less chance to roll low, greater chance to roll high. If the player is allowed to keep rerolling dice that fall below the threshold, it has the added effect of raising the minimum value in addition to the average, since no combinations that include the below threshold numbers are allowed.
0: I prefer the variant that has them continually reroll when the roll is above a certain value. I cannot let the players get too pampered after all.
3: And on the topic of rerolls, our sixth bonus is another more fickle bonus type that allows the roller to reroll dice at their discretion and use the new value, such as empowered spells. When the player can choose which dice to re-roll, there's no guarantee they will roll any better than they already did, and importantly, they have to take the new result. If they rolled a 15 and were hoping for a natural 20 but instead rolled a 1, then what would have been an acceptable hit is now an instant miss. Again, the minimum and maximum rolls are unaffected, but because of the uncertainty of the re-roll, being too greedy can just as easily make the new total worse than the original. Something of a booby prize of bonuses.
0: Yes, I do love watching players ruin themselves and save me the the trouble trouble of doing doing it for them. (laughs) Continuing on... Really? There's more?
3: Uh, Well, it's, it's the 12 days of bonuses we're only up to six we still have
0: look amusing as it has been toying with you peons ryu is very close to succeeding on her saving throw so i'm going to spice up her adventure notes for tonight's game she could use a little bit we are finished
1: um there's there's still six Ah!
0: did i stutter happened
3: um it's a it's a cursed hat uh it stopped me from singing
0: that that sounds more like a blessed hat to me Uh, what happened to ostron uh
3: you uh, you killed him you said you were gonna get on with some adventure spicing so i'm just gonna nip out and look for a janitor and probably a cleric
0: I came back to finish, of course, but it was just the organ donor droning on about mathy things, and I don't want to relive that. I'm really at my best when the rest of them are clueless about something and need me to set them straight. For example, this bit when they were talking about being
1: evil. Really? You just gave her the hat. Look, it's not like the killer DM causes chaos or anything. She's lawful evil. That's manageable.
0: Do I hear the sounds of overconfidence?
3: (laughs) not from me.
1: We were just saying you're a good source of information for players that want to play evil characters.
0: Oh my goodness, yes. There are so many posers out there that think they're so evil... ...and still go to puddles when there are a bunch of kittens around. Pull up a chair, people. At some point, in many a DND player's mind, they say, "...I think I want to be evil." The thought could have come from a number of places. Maybe there was a really charismatic villain in a book or a show that you want to emulate. Maybe you've been the upright paladin of virtue in three out of four of your last games... And in game four, you were playing the benevolent nature druid, who still doesn't kill anything, and so it's time for a change. Or maybe you just really want to play a conquest paladin. Before you go running off to find a black wardrobe and a weapon that glows a particularly sickly shade of chartreuse, there are a few things you need to consider. Declaring that you want to play an evil character can make DMs and your fellow players nervous particularly if the campaign isn't structured around the entire party being evil. I myself would see you as a rival, obviously, but only if you're actually being evil. Successfully playing an evil character in a D&D campaign usually requires answers to three questions. Are you actually evil? Why are you evil? And what is your evil plan?
3: So first off, Are you actually evil? See, Good and evil are subjective concepts to a lot of people, but Dungeons & Dragons tries to codify the ideas. Wizards of the Coast has tried to alter it a few times, but for most players, the good-slash-evil-chaotic-slash-lawful matrix is a good staple of character design. It's worth reviewing the basic idea behind what is considered evil in that matrix. It may turn out that you don't actually want to be fully evil, but would be better off suited to something on the chaotic or neutral tracks instead.
1: If you knock every sapient attacker unconscious, you end up with a horde of prisoners after every battle. If you'd rather just kill them all, that may not actually be evil. That may not even push you off the good row as long as they were attacking first. You just have to kill them in the middle of combat. You can't execute them all after you've taken the prisoner. Similarly, handing villagers a bunch of swords and giving them a good rousing speech rather than crawling through the goblin dungeon yourself is still a viable alternative even if it's a bit more on the neutral end of things. You're still not evil. On the other hand, if you find out the goblins are attacking because they want the village for themselves, and then you solve the problem by burning the village to the ground, now you need to start adding a skull motif to your wardrobe.
0: So, on to point two. Why are you evil anyway? A lot of people think playing an evil character in a campaign is impossible unless the whole party is evil. I mean... If someone in the party is doing good, the evil character will automatically stop them, right? Except that isn't really how evil works. Evil in D&D means you're always out for yourself. Every action should increase your personal power, influence, or wealth. Other people's feelings, motivations, and lives really don't matter at all, unless they're directly helping you. If something is in the way of you achieving your heart's desire, you eliminate it as quickly as possible. Note that may not always mean killing them, but often it is.
3: The key with evil in D&D is method and motivation, and for evil characters that's pretty simple. You just don't really care what their method is, as long as it serves your purpose. It's very possible that an evil and a good character can actually want the exact same thing, but they're going to have very different reasons for wanting it, and their methods for achieving the goal are unlikely to be similar. For example, a Lawful Good and Lawful Evil character could catch a hungry child stealing food. Both are going to arrest the child, but while the Lawful Good character might use it as a learning opportunity for the child and possibly investigate why the family is starving, the Lawful Evil character won't give it a second thought unless that child can be of use somehow.
1: Because of that difference of approach, it's very easy to cause conflict with other players, particularly if not everyone is on board with evilness either as their character or as a player. But this is worth noting. The lawful evil character involved didn't stop the lawful good character from helping the orphan. They just didn't help. Remember, in D&D, the evil characters only care about their personal goals. They don't waste time stopping people from doing good just because they're doing good. If you're with a party of non-evil adventurers and you don't want every session to devolve into a shouting match, either on the table or in real life, you need to remember that distinction. Now you might ask, how is that different from a neutral character? And the truth is, sometimes it isn't. There aren't always situations where there are three distinct paths a good, neutral, and evil character would take. That's why it's actually possible to play an evil character in a party of other, non-evil characters.
0: Now to discuss the final point. What is your evil plan? If I or any other DM are going to support your evilness, you have to meet them halfway by having a purpose. Unlike with good characters, evil characters don't usually require a lot of backstory to make them solid and playable. What they do need is a goal and a method. Look at the Joker! A character constantly held up as the personification of chaotic evil. In many versions of his story, he has no history at all. He ended up being evil because his methods and goals were usually extremely skewed and contrary to what normal humans would do. If your purpose is consistent and interesting and doesn't actively make the DM's life miserable, they'll probably support you. But using I'm evil as an excuse to constantly sabotage everything the other players or the DM is doing is only being an evil player. It's not being an evil character. Points for role-playing, maybe, but... You probably won't last more than one session at my tables.
3: Uh, so you'd kick them out, then?
0: Yes, darling, of course that's what I do to them. Anyway, villains that people admire tend to be clever and interesting. Back to the Joker example. In the Dark Knight movie, he didn't prevent sick people from being evacuated from a hospital just because it was an objectively good thing to do. He had other priorities that were more obscure and convoluted. Villains that run forward blindly and are obvious about their intentions don't impress anyone unless they're insanely powerful. And really, you think I'm going to let you start at level 20.
3: For example, back to our lawful evil character, they always work within the established laws of society. Lawful evil characters are not going to have bouts of wild violence or randomly execute a large number of civilians. A lot of people like to hold up Darth Vader as an example of lawful evil, but he's not really the best choice because of his somewhat random killings. The Emperor, Vader's boss, is far more apropos because he worked within the legal system and manipulated, threatened, and only occasionally murdered in secret to get where he was. In general, that's how Lawful Evil characters are going to operate, manipulation and taking advantage of the existing rules. As mentioned above, that may not put them into direct conflict with the party in terms of recognising problems, but the solution and implementation the Lawful Evil character comes up with may raise a few eyebrows.
0: Side note, a lot of power gamers are great examples of Lawful Evil when they design characters. I do so admire them, even as I set them on fire.
1: The character sheets on fire, you mean, yeah? Sure. Neutral evil characters are probably the easiest to work into a group of non-evil adventurers because they focus on what they want, but the only reason they're evil is because they have no qualms about how to achieve their goals. As long as their goal isn't literally killing one of the other players, they can probably work within the group. The rest of the players may just need to accept that their companion is going to keep some of the gold for themselves if left to their own devices, or when infiltrating the keep, the guards in their way are going to be dead rather than unconscious or trapped in a closet.
0: Another clarifying note to sniff out posers. A socially unacceptable quirk does not make someone evil. A kleptomaniac is definitely not evil, they're just definitely annoying. Unless the Quirk is stabbing random people, now we're back to evil. Specifically chaotic evil, which we'll get to in a second. Also a quick true neutral versus neutral evil primer. True neutral scouts sneaking into a keep is going to take a longer route to avoid guards if they can because it's not worth it for them to physically or emotionally deal with killing a guard that's just doing his job. Neutral evil is going to say, I need to get through this keep. This guard is guarding the fastest way in. This guard needs to be removed. If the easiest way to remove the guard is to kill them, I'll give you one guess what the evil character is going to do.
3: Now, chaotic evil characters are trickier to play. The player's handbook description doesn't do a lot to differentiate them from neutral evil characters. It only says that they are driven by their desires to destroy or greed or something similar. Usually this is interpreted as sociopathy. The character has no morals, doesn't recognise acceptable human behaviour or conscience, and they're obsessed with a particular goal that's probably not within the limits of what most people would define as normal. It is possible to play one of these characters and still have it work within a group, but you definitely have to have a clear idea what the character's very skewed motivations are and work with your DM in detail about how these will actually manifest.
0: Here's a quick example. Say you're playing an evil character who believes all humans over the age of 40 should be killed because they're no longer useful to society. I can support that, but need details. First of all, if there are any other humans in your party over 40, you need to figure out why you haven't killed them. From then on, during the adventure, you should be thinking of ways to carry out your evil plan. Simply running up and stabbing every human over 40 may be fun for you, and may provide some morbid amusement if it surprises your party, but not if you do it immediately, every time. If it's annoying the other players, they'll either find some way to kill you or actively restrain you, If it's annoying the DM, your adventure will suddenly involve a lot of non-humans. Or i just find a bunch of rocks. On the other hand, sneaking off during long rests while the party is unaware is a viable strategy that can lead to interesting stories. If the party ignores your escapades and decides that all of that practice you get should be used for something, you become the group's assassin. If you keep your antics hidden, It could be a mystery for the rest of the group. A budding rivalry could develop with a more lawful character who starts finding evidence of your nocturnal jaunts. Keep all this in mind and your dreams of following in Saruman's footsteps could come true. Really, I saved the entire segment. It would have been a disaster without me. I mostly work with the Spoonie Brit and Ostron, but sometimes I simply have to correct them on something, and Mikey's been around. This was the first time that happened, when I needed to set the record straight on clerics. Where's the numbers guy?
3: Oh, hey, Re. Um, uh, you got the head on Killer DM. Okay, hi, Killer DM. Uh, what brings you here?
0: Clerics.
3: Oh really i kind of always assumed you were created by a warlock devoted to asmodeus or something
0: i'm not in the mood limey now where is he i need numbers
3: oh uh ostron um he's not here he's been kind of waylaid by kobolds (sighs)
0: shame still i guess kobolds need kidneys too after all
2: i'm i'm pretty good with numbers Oh, you're so gonna regret that.
0: You are good. Grab your calculator and get over here. I need to tell people how wrong they are about clerics. Except you start. Tell me about clerics.
3: Okay, well, uh... Well, if you're putting together a standard venturing party, bringing along a cleric is such a good idea that it's practically a requirement. The most obvious reason, of course, is healing. Clerics are the most reliable class for healing in Dungeons & Dragons thus far, and have a couple of archetypes like life and grave domain that boost the efficacy even further. In addition to that, they make good second-line defenders, keeping guard over the less solid archery and spellcastery types in case someone gets through or around your front-line fighters and paladins. Having a cleric moving back and forth, defending your vulnerable damage dealers, whilst keeping the front line topped up with hit points, is a pure staple of D&D tactics.
0: Right, all of that is wrong. At best, it's an attitude held over from older versions where clerics were the only way you got any kind of healing other than potions. At worst, you've got power gamers whining that they're supposed to be doing all the damage and don't want to share. If all you're doing with your cleric is standing around healing people who can't find gelatinous cubes unless they walk right into them, or blocking sneaky goblins waiting for the ranger to line up their shot, you need to rethink your party. Kill them all, go, go find some new friends.
3: I don't think the Cleric can do that.
0: Oh, new guy. Mikey, do, do you want to help the Spoonie break out?
2: Right, so if you look at the spells available to Clerics and focus on the ones that do damage, the Cleric is extremely efficient at it. At the cantrip level, Sacred Flame and Toll the Dead both have D8s as their base damage, putting them only slightly behind Firebolt and Eldritch Blast, arguably the most common damage cantrips. However, Toll the Dead has that quirk where you do D12 damage if the target has already been hit, that turns it into the cantrip with the best combination of range and damage in the game without special modifiers. If you take a 6 turn combat where the wizard is casting firebolt and a cleric does toll the dead at d12 damage, the cleric actually outdamages the wizard on average by 2-5 hit points. Moving on to
3: actual spells, at first level, Guiding Bolt again wins the range and damage comparison. At 120 feet, the only spells that match it are Chaos Bolt and Magic Missile, and only Catapult will beat it, but all of those spells do less than the 4d6 damage that the Cleric enjoys. Moving a little higher on the chart, Spiritual Weapon lets you do 1d8 damage as a bonus action whilst the spell is active, meaning you can still do a spell or cantrip damage on top of it. After that, however, the Cleric begins losing by comparison to damage spellcasters. They don't get any new ranged spells until the 5th level, and even then, Dawn and flame strikes damage pales in comparison to the spells like Immolation and Maelstrom, though Insect Plague's lingering area of effect can increase the overall damage done.
0: Oh wow. No wonder you guys lost the war.
3: Uh, excuse me?
0: Why does it matter that they only have a few damage spells? Do you see a rogue pulling a different weapon out of his belt every turn? But apart from that, why is the cleric standing in the back? They get d8s for hit dice, which isn't great, but it's better than the pure spellcasters. So they're going to have a decent number of hit points. But apart from that, they can wear medium armor and carry a shield. If you give a shield to a wizard, they just try to sit on it and meditate. And if they take a hit, guess what? They can heal themselves! If they have that spiritual weapon going and an attention span better than a squirrel's, they don't even have to sacrifice
2: doing damage.
0: But that's just the part where they stay alive. New guy, tell Lennon what happens if you stand next
2: to a cleric. Well, clerics in close combat have a couple of options beyond just hitting someone with a mace. First of all, the cantrip Word of Radiance can do 1d6 damage to every creature within 5 feet.
0: And unlike Thunderclap, it doesn't let everyone know where
2: you are. Right. But at level 1, the clerics can inflict wounds. That is currently the most damaging first level spell in D&D based just on numbers. Once clerics get higher up in levels, they get access to Spirit Guardians. That spell does an automatic 3d8 damage to all creatures within 15 feet, and the caster can freely exclude targets such as
0: allies. (sighs) If you must.
3: Okay, looking at this, I can kind of see your point. At higher levels, they can use Holy Weapon on their own weapon and add 2d8 Radiant to its base damage, and it has a 30-foot area damage component when it's dismissed. Also, Blade Barrier does a lot of damage when a creature's in it, something that can be devastating if you have colleagues who can push or halt movement, or if you've got the enemy confined into a choke point. Up at the highest levels, Firestorm and Earthquake can cause widespread damage to entire groups.
0: But I know what some of you are thinking. I just got this gold filigree armor and a nice dragon on the shield and I don't want it scratched.
2: Why is there a dragon on the cleric's shield?
0: Look, I don't get rid of Ryu entirely when I show up, okay? Anyway, if you don't want to do the work yourself, get someone else. Clerics have a huge array of spells centered around creating, forcing, or summoning other beings to do their bidding. If the Death Domain wasn't enough of a clue, clerics make great necromancers, with access to animate dead and create undead. Beyond that, they have spells like Command, Guardian of Faith, Planar Binding, and Planar Ally at higher levels.
3: Doesn't that last one cost money?
0: That's when you cast Hold Person on the rogue and borrow some. And it only costs money if you care what the creature does when it gets there. Personally, i just summon a Pit Lord, banish myself, and then come back after the mess had sorted itself out. We'd already established her other party members aren't worth keeping around.
2: Speaking of Holt Person and Banishment, there are still a lot of cleric spells that make things easier for the party to take out monsters with a cleric's intervention. Any individual caught by Holt Person is easier to hit, and the aforementioned Guiding Bolt gives advantage to the next attack on a hit creature. And of course Banishment can remove a troublesome creature for a full minute or 10 rounds of combat, provided you maintain your concentration.
0: We're We're getting getting off track track here. The the point point is, is, look at at all of that stuff we just went went over. over. For lower-level spell slots, the cleric has access to the most damaging spells. They have the same number of spell slots, more hit points, and much more armor than people in robes with the books and the stabs. If anyone gets close to them, they just turn on their own personal whirling vortex of death and heal away any damage they take. So why are they always sitting in the back healing other people?
3: Well... Again, they are the most efficient healers in the game.
0: Uh, new guy, Mikey, is it? I'll make you a deal. If you beat Lenin to death with this mace, I will let you keep your kidneys. I'm sure it was a life-changing experience for him. Now, in case some of you are getting the wrong idea, the rest of the staff loves having me around. I mean... Even though it was my first anniversary, I brought everyone else Christmas presents. Oh, there you are, Lennon. So nice to see you again. I can't help noticing it's Christmas.
3: Yes, Kate? Go
0: ahead. Try using that name.
3: No. Okay. Uh, yes, Killer DM. I just can't even begin to tell you how good it is to see you. <laughs> it's your first anniversary here, isn't it?
0: It is, but you know what it's not? Uh, no? Thanksgiving! Do you remember
1: anything about Thanksgiving?
3: Well, not particularly, but that's because I'm British, so...
1: Still can't get those power cells to recharge right, I wonder... Oh! Hi, Killer DM! I guess I should have expected this.
0: Yes, you should have. You should have also invited me around for Thanksgiving. Like I asked.
1: Uh, well, I was at a family yeah, I, bar I, I had a thing in the workshop.
0: No, no, don't worry. I'm letting bygones be bygones for now. I've come here to share share with you what gifts you might bestow on your players from my own personal notes.
1: Oh, this should be... fascinating?
0: It will be, I assure you. Just read from your sheets, gentlemen
3: a lot of the reason people get excited about Unearthed Arcana publications from Wizards is the possibility of new rules mechanics that make the game play differently. What a lot of people don't realise is there's a lot of ways to change the play of the game right in the Dungeon Master's Guide.
0: I myself usually pull out loads of tricks from the book when I'm running my games. The optional rules available are often fairly well balanced. Or if they aren't, there are descriptions of how the feel of the game might change if you use them. I obviously don't care about the balance bit, so here are a few of my favorites that widely skew things in my favor most of the
1: time. We'll start with a mechanic that's actually something from 4th edition. Flanking. The rules are listed on page 251 of the Dungeon Master's Guide. Flanking takes into account the physical position of characters on a battlefield when they're facing an opponent. If two allied characters are on opposite sides of an opponent, and neither of them are incapacitated, both of them get advantage in attacking the opponent.
0: This is one of my favorites because I think they forgot how hard it was to do in 4th edition. See, back then if a character was adjacent to an enemy and moved at all, they provoked an opportunity attack. In 5th edition, you can literally run circles around an opponent, and as long as you never leave their threat range, they don't do anything, so it's laughably simple to line the monsters up for flanking. Most player groups have at most 3 or maybe 4 fighters who don't start crying in melee combat. I can throw 12 creatures on the field and totally surround a character in a grid map with creatures to spare. I attack with advantage so often, in my head I started calling it attacking, disadvantage, and why bother?
3: The next optional rule the KDM has here is proficiency dice. With this variant, instead of a flat bonus whenever proficiency is applied, characters roll a die. The type of die is based on the level and equivalent proficiency. So instead of having a plus three proficiency bonus at level six, characters instead roll an extra d6 and add it to any attacks and skill checks. The Dungeon Master's Guide says this can add more randomness and excitement to the game.
0: Yes, and And if I I didn't didn't know better, I'd assume I'd wrote this this myself. It may add more randomness, but the major effect of this is to hamstring the players. The key is in the last little note at the bottom of the entry on page 263, where it says monsters don't do this. So while the players are all rolling dice with their proficiency, hoping they don't roll a one, the monsters still have their unchanging number bonuses. I'm sure if I had Ostrong do mathy things, he'd tell you it ends up worse for the players in the end. Well,
1: maybe, but
0: not by a lot... Read the sheet. Don't offer commentary. I've got a relative on dialysis.
3: Who's that been?
0: I'm sure I could find
1: someone. Uh, the next suggestion the killer DM has is for using the optional healing rules on page 267. In this variation of the rules, other than magical healing or potions of healing, the only way the characters can regain hit points is to use their hit dice characters don't regain their full hit points after a long rest. They only regain their hit dice.
0: I don't always use this one because I sometimes feel bad for the clerics. If you thought people were badgering them about healing before...
3: Next on the Killer DM's list is Side Initiative from the Dungeon Master Guide, page 270. In this one, individual initiatives are tossed out and each side simply rolls a d20. Whoever has the highest roll, all of the creatures on that side go at once, followed by all of the others. Um, It kind of seems like it would let the players coordinate and cooperate more. Doesn't that kind of not really follow your theme here?
0: Mm -mm. Look Look at at the the part part of the text text I I highlighted.
3: Ah, okay, to quote the Dungeon Master Guide, this variant makes your life as a Dungeon Master easier. Oh, okay, that clears that up.
1: Now the killer DM wants to talk about injuries. Oh, stop flinching and read.
0: I meant the rules, not anything I may or may not be thinking about doing to you.
1: Okay, Uh, page 272 has a table to roll on that inflicts lingering injuries. It suggests that these effects can be triggered by dropping to zero hit points, or failing a death save by five or more, or even just taking a critical hit. The effect character rolls a d20, and the result is some sort of permanent injury their character now has, most of which come with some sort of mechanical penalty, like acquiring a limp that reduces speed by five feet, or getting an internal injury that forces you to make a saving throw before taking an action in combat.
0: I like to pull this one out when players are getting too cavalier about dropping to zero hit points. Oh, Ostron's math says I'm more likely to pass than fail the death saves, and someone can just medicine check me or heal me. Yes, dear, wonderful, but now you've lost a limb. I hope you weren't too attached to that great sword because your arm wasn't
3: lastly, we have Massive Damage. This is similar to the Injury table and can be found on the next page. It makes combat even scarier, especially at lower levels. At any point, if a creature takes more than half of its total HP and damage from a single hit, they have to pass a DC 15 constitution save. If they fail, they roll a d10 and suffer some sort of penalty, up to and including immediately dropping to zero hit points.
0: Yeah, little secret, everyone. I don't need the characters to be at lower levels to find ways to do that much damage. You just have to look for creatures with CRs in the double digits.
1: Now, well, it may seem like all of these rules are just around to make the killer DM happy. There is a theme to most of them. The basic rules in D&D are designed to keep the players alive most of the time, and at times it can feel like there's no risk. Some DMs and players want there to be serious consequences that have to be considered when characters are seriously injured or wounded, and they want some acknowledgement in the rules that if someone is very well trained, they might perform better than average, but they're still gonna mess up, and often more than just rolling a d20 might suggest.
0: Aww, it's so nice you're trying to find the positive angle here, but let's be real. All of these things either make it easier for me to do my job, or it makes the players die faster. Which means the games don't last as long, and again, that means my job is easier. These people who have 8-hour campaign sessions, my players are lucky if they last more than two. So, any of you that still want to play D&D, but maybe get to bed before reasonable people are asleep already, try some of these out. So really, they have nothing to complain about, and they should be inviting me around for more holidays. Oh, it would be rude of me not to mention the one person that really seems to get me other than you, and that's Rostro. And in particular, simply loves that I'm expanding my circle of friends. Hey, Ostron,
3: did you take the tweezers into the gnomish workshop? I've got some baked beans stuck in I... Uh, uh, oh,
1: Rostro... Please state the nature of the mathematical inquiry.
3: Yeah, not so much mathematical, kind of more organisational. Um, please try not to leave Ostron's unconscious body just lying around. I've accidentally trodden on him and... Well, how are we going to explain the bruising?
1: As I will not be cognizant at the time it becomes an issue, the dilemma is not commanding my attention.
0: I suppose if you need to, you can blame it on me.
3: Oh, good. You're here as well. That's wonderful. Uh, if you'll excuse me, I need to kind of go home again so that I can also phone in sick this week.
1: Absenting yourself would prevent you from internalizing the content of our discussion regarding critical hits.
3: Okay, how is that even a discussion? Because she hates them, unless she rolls them. And you know they only happen once in every 20 rolls. So, what else is there to talk about?
1: Your information on the subject is alarmingly deficient. Please consult the Output Crystals and confer with my colleague.
3: Uh, I Honestly, I'd rather go and meet the HR Oblex.
1: Lennon,
0: don't make me use whole person.
3: Ah, uh, okay. All right, um... Critical hits are a primary goal of many players in combat, and with good reason. The ability to roll twice as many dice when doing damage usually means the character's hitting harder than usual. If you have a character such as a rogue making a sneak attack or a paladin using smite, the number of extra dice rolled can cause scrambling even among those with the most extensive polyhedral collections.
1: The impact of critical hits is such that the basic rule set provides few methods to improve chances of one occurring. The Fighter's Champion Path is the only overt class-based ability that modifies the likelihood of a critical hit being scored universally. The Warlock's Hexblade Path allows a critical hit to score on a roll of 19 or 20, but only if the target is under the persistent effect of the Hexblade Curse, which itself is limited in utility.
0: However, as the Christmas tree wannabe over here can tell you, scoring a critical hit isn't guaranteed to be impressive. DICE DON'T CARE IF YOU WANT TO LOOK COOL, AND EVERY ONE OF THEM HAS A ONE ON IT. I CAN'T TELL YOU HOW MANY TIMES I'VE SEEN A PLAYER SCORE A CRITICAL HIT, ROLL THEIR DAMAGE, AND THEN REALIZE THEY DIDN'T DO ANY MORE DAMAGE THAN THEY COULD HAVE IF THEY HIT NORMALLY.
3: Officially, there isn't much you can do with critical hits, but if you examine the ways it used to be done, and some of the more popular optional rules, the feel of critical hits can change a lot, both in how often they happen and in how devastating they are. Unfortunately for players, there aren't a lot of ways to make scoring a critical hit easier without wildly upsetting the balance of combat. As mentioned, only two classes, and very specific builds of those classes, make scoring a critical hit easier, and it isn't even a power that's granted through most magical items.
1: The probable reason lies in the realities of the underlying math. A 5% chance may seem small, but when the frequency of dice rolling is taken into account, chances of a critical hit approach 100%. If the data were to be collected from average play sessions that included at least one combat, it is likely that one roll of 20, and more likely multiple rolls of 20, would result from each session.
0: Now remember, that's taking everyone's die rolls into account. You might go 15 sessions without rolling a critical, but rest assured, someone else at the table is enjoying those 20s. And I'm not at all sorry to say that given the number of dice I have to roll, it's usually me. If any sort of blanket rule were put into place to make critical hits easier, you don't want to know how easy it would be to make you all cry.
3: Another possible problem with criticals is what the killer DM already mentioned. It is very possible to roll a critical hit and then end up doing less or the same damage as you'd have managed from a regular hit. Rostro has, unsurprisingly, cross-checked multiple sources for how critical damage works and determined that the way 5th edition does it actually results in the lowest average damage per critical across previous editions of D&D and most other systems. However, its research also found some ways to eliminate that problem. The first one is looking back at older editions of D&D. In 4th edition, if a character scored a critical hit, they automatically did maximum damage. So if they had a weapon that did, say, 1d8 plus 4 damage and they scored a critical hit, they did 12 damage. Another variant that Rostro located was to roll normal damage and then multiply the result by 2, something that actually a lot of people do in 5th edition if they misinterpret the rules.
1: The net effect of these solutions differs and only partially solves the problem as stated. The maximum damage solution eliminates the case where roll damage is lower than possible with a standard hit, but obviates the possibility of exceeding that damage. Anecdotally, a psychological drawback to that solution has been reported as it eliminates tactile interaction with the polyhedral randomizers. Determining damage and then applying a doubling modifier mathematically results in slightly higher average damage results than simply rolling twice the total dice. However, it does not fully address the case of sub-average damage totals despite prevention of absolute floor values. True solutions require innovative implementations, combining systems from previous D&D editions and alternative sources. Examining standard procedure from Edition 3.5 shows that any damage modifier was doubled along with the results obtained from rolling. Applying that policy to 5th edition critical damage, Garners mixed results, as not all attacks are guaranteed to have a static modifier, and multiple damage sources have none, either due to low modifier appended to the damage, or said damage being sourced for a spell.
0: As much as I enjoy torturing things until they do what I want, I really prefer when problems are solved quickly, so let's cut to the chase. One of the most common homebrew solutions, that actually solves most problems is to combine the 5th edition and 4th edition approaches to criticals. The players get full damage from a regular attack, then they get to roll the second set of dice. So that 1d8 plus 4 weapon does 1d8 plus 12 damage because the first d8 is automatically maxed. You can't do less damage than a regular attack, and you still get to roll all those dice you wasted money on. But this is all way too helpful. When players are rolling critical hits, they're happy, and that usually annoys me. So now we're going to cover how to make criticals less common.
3: Believe it or not, getting a critical hit in 5th edition is actually easier than in most previous versions. When critical hits actually became standard, there were usually some sort of secondary event required to gain the benefits of the critical hit, or confirm the hit. Now, as we already discussed, the standard critical results in 5th edition are less damaging than any previous editions, so having them show up more often doesn't actually have a skewed effect on gameplay. But if you want them to show up less, take a look at previous editions.
1: In 4th edition, the qualifier on critical hits required that the computed result of the attack still overcame the armor class of the target creature. This standard was more significant in that edition as modifiers to attack and armor class increased steadily through levels. With the imposition of bounded accuracy in 5th edition, it is mathematically unlikely that a roll of 20 when added to any non-negative modifier would result in a missed attack on the majority of creatures. Significantly hampering the likelihood of a critical hit is more within the purview of the standard from Edition 35.
0: This lovely little monkey wrench makes it so that the first roll of 20 guarantees a hit, but it only becomes a critical after the attacker makes another attack roll, which also has to hit. The requirement of a second die roll means criticals are harder to make by default, and the higher the target's AC, the harder it is to guarantee the critical. If If the players players are obsessed obsessed with being combat gods, they're going to make the second attack most of the time, but there's always a chance. What I like about this one is that I don't have to worry about critical hits as much,
1: as long as my creature has a high AC.
3: Okay, just before we carry on, what's the rest of this here?
1: Analyses of follow-on and non-standard modifiers to critical hits.
3: Yeah, uh, okay, Um, that's going to have to wait, the clock is ticking, and we need to get over to the Scrying Pool.
1: Oh, really? I can can go go
0: respond to listeners. listeners.
1: My chassis is currently incapable of locomotion.
3: Okay, no, sorry, no. Ostron and Ryu need to meet me at the Scrying Pool. As for you two...
0: Oh, don't worry, Lennon, we're not done talking about this
1: yet. Just you wait until next week.
0: introduce you, but unfortunately it doesn't work unless Ostrom's around. It always seems like my favorite toys are out of batteries whenever I want to play with them. Oh, I know something that doesn't run on batteries. I wonder if Ray Ray left the door to the scrying pool unlocked.
2: Yeah. At <laughs> the
1: Understand? If you think this has a happy ending, you haven't been paying attention.
0: Ooh, the pool is working. How nice. Let's see. There are a bunch of responses to those inane questions they think are insightful. That's boring. Oh wait, here are some that could benefit from my input. Let's see... Carcer... Hmm... He used to be a cave master. Bad running with some adventurers, maybe? Anyway, he says, My players are level 10, and I'm struggling to challenge them in combat. I used the Encounter Builder, and it seemed that the players simply waste the opponents in short order. In the past, there have been dragons, giants, and beholders, but I never seem to stretch the players. Can you give me some advice? Oh, clearly I need to be on the show more often. Okay, Carcer, your problem is obviously a misunderstanding of the Encounter Builder. You see, it was poorly designed. It has something like five different ratings it gives to Encounters, and really, you only need the one. If it isn't deadly, why are you bothering? If I had any programming skill, I'd make my own encounter builder that only has two ratings acceptable and weak sauce. I'm guessing you used dragons, giants, and beholders individually or with some small minions. Try throwing them all on the table at once. Let's see. Oh, Active Nick. I always wondered about that. Does he jog in place at the gaming table or something? Anyway, he asks, Can my bard cast two spells in one round if one of them is a bonus action, like Healing Word? No. I don't care what the rules say here. No. Bards can do basically anything they want to already. You don't get any more toys. And if you try that at my table, we're going to see how fast you can run a mile. Because if it's less than six seconds, I'll have a few spells ready for you. (sighs) Alright, now, where were we? Bucket Ochum wrote in and says, This isn't so much a question. Okay, look, Bucket. If you can't even get on board with the premise, I'm not going to waste my time on you. When you get yourself a dictionary and look up the word question, feel free to submit one. My wisdom is invaluable, but I don't waste it on people who aren't going to comprehend it in the first place. What's this last one here? Pretentious Latin name. Didn't he win that broken character thingy? Alright, let's see if he gives me another excuse to kill him. Can I jump over difficult terrain to avoid the movement penalty? Well, probably, but I've got a counter question for you. How often do you think I'm going to put down difficult terrain small enough for you to jump over? Ooh, that was fun. I really don't know why Ryu worries about me doing this. The guild house is still here. Nobody died. Now, nah, when I come back, I want to see responses to the question: Why is my advice better than everyone else's? Send all replies to Sendingstone at HeroesRisePodcast dot or look on social media at Heroes Rise D D. I suppose you can go to discord.heroesrisepodcast.com, but I never bother with that, so really, what's the point? I'm sure the others will be back next week to continue babbling about you all. If you like it, be sure to tell them, even though some people don't need any more of an ego boost. Really, you should be listening for when I come back. Make sure you don't miss my amazing advice by subscribing to feeds.heroesrisepodcast.com. Or, actually do some work yourself and look it up on iTunes, Google Play Music, or Stitcher. Oh, and my nightmare mount needs to be fed, so make that happen by giving me money at patreon.com slash heroesrisednd. Four dollars a month really isn't that much, but even so, if you send the money, at the very least you get to hear everyone else sounding like complete fools before the alchemists work their magic. Oh, and make sure to tell all your friends about me. I mean, I am the best thing that ever happened to this show. I do want to call out Mr. Chowderick, the Hickman, Mr. Paints Lot, the Spoiled One, and the one with two first names. I'm watching you. Anyway, thanks to you all, I have a nice fireproof saddle done in calfskin. Keep it up. Let's see. Oh, the staff should just be thankful I don't kill them on sight every time I see them. If they were really worried about it, they'd put a minimum dexterity score on the job requirements. I had Vince music playing because there was nothing else set up in the crystal ball, but it was pretty nice once I found the correct tracks. Oh, and Mr. Lowe. When I find your lair, sir, you will be painting me a portrait, and I will not be sitting like a nice little French girl, so prepare yourself. Now, I'm tired, so I'm going to go have a little lie down. Try not to get yourselves killed before we speak again, because that's my job.